Building on a Firm Foundation, Basics of the Catholic Faith, a Catechism Series by David Rodriguez, sponsored by the Fatima Center. Episode 5, Basic Catholic Anthropology, given on August 4, 2020. Praise be Jesus and Mary. I'm David Rodriguez, Content Director of the Fatima Center, and we're building on a firm foundation as we study the basics of our Catholic faith. Now, thus far, we've been looking at the human person. Question number three indicated that we're made in the image and likeness of God. And then prompted by question number four, which states that that image and likeness is chiefly in the human soul, we went ahead and looked at the soul of man, which is his form. We also learned that the matter of man is his body. So we want to take a little bit of time to look at that also. Now we're going to deviate slightly from the Catechism because a number of the topics we're covering here in this basic Catholic anthropology don't come up until much later on in the series of questions. But I think this will give us a much more firm understanding of who the human is so that we can understand some of the topics coming up, particularly faith. That's actually the next question we're going to deal with. deals with the virtue of faith and it's very misunderstood. And I think if we're grounded a little bit better in our basic Catholic anthropology, that will help us understand that virtue of faith more clearly and be able to explain to others. So that's why I'm sort of taking this path. Just a little bit of housekeeping before we get started. If you are not aware of this, for each of the talks I've given, there are notes available at our website. They're in PDF format, so you can just download them. We do have a number of other video series going on on our website and Fatima Center YouTube channel, so I hope you're able to see them. Uh, usually on Mondays, Chris Farrar is talking about church and state with current events. On Saturdays, Mr. Kennedy Hall is giving a Kennedy report. Right now he's talking about masculinity, but in the future he'll also be talking about some other topics like evolution. And then usually on Friday we get a talk from one of the priests. And then all of these talks are also available on our podcast. So you can go to the website and find those. If, for example, you're driving and aren't near your computer but can still listen and just want to listen to the audio, you can hear those that way. We also regularly post articles at our website and we send out mailings as well. So if you're interested in any of that information, you can contact us, go to the website, especially under the News and Views tab. Okay, now we'll go ahead and begin with our prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Under thy patronage, dear Mother, and invoking the mystery of thine Immaculate Conception, I desire to pursue my studies and my literary labors. I hereby song declare that I am devoting myself to these studies chiefly to the following end, that I may better contribute to the glory of God and to the spread of thy veneration among men. I pray thee, therefore, most loving Mother, who art the seed of wisdom, to bless my labors in thy loving kindness. Moreover, I promise with true affection and willing spirit, as it is right that I should do, to ascribe all the good that shall occur to me therefrom, wholly to thine intercession for me in God's holy presence. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, last time we left off discussing about how the soul is really capable of both natural life and also supernatural life, the life of grace. 
Generally, when we speak about the body, we're really focusing more on the natural life. Now, that's not to say that the body is not going to somehow participate in the supernatural life. It can. For example, when saints go into ecstasies or bilocate. But we generally classify those under the things of miracles, basically where the physical laws of the universe are temporarily suspended. And we see something happen that goes completely contrary to those physical laws that we're so accustomed to, like gravity. We call that a miracle. But you can see really how grace is affecting our bodies. And in some ways, this remains somewhat mysterious and veiled. To some extent, we're going to talk about this more with the four last things. But we know that all bodies will be resurrected. Even those of the damned, they'll have, after the general judgment, the final judgment, when this world is destroyed by fire and Christ comes again to judge all of us, the living and the dead, all bodies will be resurrected. The damned will have bodies that will actually increase their sufferings in hell. And of course, the blessed in heaven will have glorified bodies. Uh, so clearly at that point in time, somehow God will be you know, suffusing our bodies with supernatural grace, I imagine as well. But again, that's the miraculous and that's the end times. So in general... Probably for most of what you and I experience, as we think about the body, it is much more on, on the natural level. Uh, so we want to look at it that way, but at the same time, we don't want to make the error of, I would say, compartmentalizing things. Sort of like saying, okay, this belongs to the soul over here, and this belongs to the body, and never the twain shall meet. Right? That doesn't make any sense. That's not who we are as human beings. But this sort of compartmentalizing of things is something I think our culture and our society does a lot of. For example, in education, we tend to zero in on certain fields of study as if they somehow can exist apart from some of the other fields of study, and we don't allow them all to sort of interrelate. So that's not a good thing, uh, especially when we're talking about something like the body and the soul, because th those two, as I said last time, can never be separated. There are some things that we do that are purely immaterial. And so those kinds of things really are going to be more a function of the soul. But just about everything else is going to be a function of the body-soul composite, the body and the soul working together. Even the most basic bodily functions, you know, we talk about things that our body does involuntarily. We don't even think about it, right? The beating of our heart or breathing. I mean, those are things our body is doing and, and generally our mind and our will are not involved in that activity. Our soul isn't, but realize that it could be, right? It could be because we all know that at times, for example, if you're afraid, let's say there's not even something physically there. Let's just say it's a fear in your mind. Uh, you're thinking about something that gets you really scared. Your, your breathing could certainly speed up. Your, your heart rate could increase and your blood is pumping faster. So we see that, again, even with something that's a normally an involuntary bodily reaction, there is a union of the body and the soul, and the two are always working together. So that's something we always have to keep in mind, because that's definitely one of the big errors going on today in our culture. In the notion that you want to reject, for example, the soul, uh, people will often think of everything in purely material terms. And they want to think of the human being as just matter, as just the body. And they forget that there is that deep connection. If you find any kind of good doctor, any kind of person in health medicine, even people just in sports, you know, coaching basketball and football and Olympic coaches and all the different sports, they'll tell you that the sport 
is more mental than it is physical in many ways. I mean, you've got to have some physical talent, obviously, to be in those sports. But and in your health, I mean, oftentimes, things that are affecting our health, yes, there may be physical things we can find, but very often, there is that mental component as well. So as we discuss the soul and the body, definitely don't compartmentalize, realizing that it is a body-soul composite. Nevertheless, as I talk about the body in this particular catechism class, we're talking about the faith, we're not really going to go over things that are generally more of the body, you know, biology and chemistry and physics, medicine, those kinds of things. That, we're studying our faith here, so that's not really what we're going to focus in on. What I'd rather focus in right now, in terms of the body, are those elements of the body that have a more profound impact upon human acts. Okay, so what is a human act? As the name implies, those acts which are specific to human beings and the other things like the inanimate objects and the animals and the plants, they don't have these human acts. So by that very definition, we know that a human act is going to involve our human soul. So a human act requires your mind and your will. In general, we also often talk about these things as being moral acts. So the human being is the only one capable of morality. We do things with a view towards goodness, towards seeking heaven. Or we can also do things that we know are evil, that we know are wrong and are contrary to God. You know, we sin. Okay, those are the kinds of things that we're talking about with human acts. Obviously, the soul is very much involved in that, but because we're a body-soul composite, the body certainly plays a role in these things as well. So, in the catechism class, I'm talking about the body, we want to specifically look at those things. Now, just as there is a hierarchy in creation, so too there is a hierarchy within man. And as we already discussed in question number seven, the soul is certainly more important than the body. We need to focus more on our soul to save it, to get to heaven. And the soul, as we know, is the mind and the will. So, actually, when we look at this hierarchy of man, the will is at the highest. And then comes the intellect. And we call those the higher spiritual faculties. Obviously, we have many other powers. For example, you have your five senses, which give you a lot of information. It's how you interact very often with the, the world, right? Sight, seeing, touch. But you also have your passions. Other words for this are things like emotions or feelings. So we're using those words synonymously. And that's what we want to look at right now, the passions and how they interact. Because we want to know the right hierarchy, the right order, as we've discussed in the past. That is a concept of beauty. When you have things in their right order, it becomes beautiful, it becomes good. And so we want to make sure that man internally to himself is ordered rightly. And this is why it's so important to get this hierarchy down right, because there's much in the world, in the flesh, and in sin that is pushing us away from that right order. Okay? So let's look very briefly now, very briefly, at the passions. Again, if someone wants to study this a little bit more, it's a fat book, but one of the books I definitely recommend because it's really thorough is this one by Father Chad Rippinger. It's called Introduction to the Science of Mental Health. And really it's the, the first section, maybe about the first 150 to 200 pages, where he deals a little bit more with these kinds of things, but very insightful. One can really learn a lot about the human person. So you're getting uh, really just the, the Cliff Notes version, uh, even smaller than that perhaps. 
So we've got two sets of passions. One are called the concupiscible passions, and the others are called the irascible passions. Concupiscible passions comes from the Latin word which basically means to desire. And they are inclined simply towards that which brings us pleasure, which we feel uh, pleasurable or consider harmful, well, you know, the opposite, lack of pleasure. Uh, they're simple because they don't take into account goodness or evil. They're just looking at is this pleasurable or not pleasurable. And so they're ordered towards the receiving of goods. Okay? And we all have those concupiscible passions. And then we have the irascible passions which incline us towards doing the arduous good, to overcome obstacles, to get through trials. So instead of being passive, they're ordered more towards action, towards activity. They get started, they get jump-started, you might say, by the concupiscible passions. That gets the irascible one started. So for example, the concupiscible sees something that is good, that it desires, that it wants, but then it turns out it's going to be difficult to get that. Well, then the irascible passions can also kick in. So they're certainly working together, and most of these passions come together in pairs. So we could look at them very quickly. The concupiscible passions come in pairs of love and hate. So love is an inclination towards that which you perceive to be good. Hate is obviously when you perceive something that is harmful. Desire and flight or desire and aversion to acquire something that you love but you don't yet have. Or repugnance towards an evil that is not yet present. And then you have delight and sorrow. Delight is enjoying a good that you already possess, whereas sorrow is over a good not yet possessed, a good that has been lost, or an evil that you do possess. So those concupiscible ones come in pairs, and then the irascible ones also come in pairs as far as hope and despair. So hope is considering a good that is not yet obtained and is arduous, and despair is also a good that's not yet obtained, but yet it's impossible to attain. It's often linked to fear. And that's the other thing. A lot of these passions are linked to each other, as we mentioned. They can jumpstart, strengthen each other. You also have audacity, which is when you have aggression towards an imminent danger for the sake of victory over it. Or you could also talk about courage, is another word used there. And then you have fear. Fear for a future evil. You're concerned about some evil that you don't think you can resist. So it's very difficult. So you see how those two are pairs. And then lastly, you have anger. The irascible passions actually take their name from anger. It's a passion that is evoked when there's an evil that is already present. You know, people want to right wrongs, and so they get angry. They want to put things right. There's no pair, because if it was a good that you already possessed, that actually becomes delight. It's a concupiscible passion. So for anger, there is no other pair. So these are our passions. And an analogy that helps us, I think, understand this and is going to give us the right hierarchy is to think of a charioteer. You see that there's two men in the chariot, and the chariot is the body, okay, and it's being pulled by the horses. Two teams of horses, they're in pairs. You've got the concupiscible passions and you've got the irascible passions. And they move the body around, so they attract us towards things, move us away from things. So those passions are very important, they're good, God has created them. But they can be a little unruly. That's why we depict them as horses. You know, they can be wild horses. And then you have the intellect, which is the man who is seeing things. And then you have the will, which is the man who's blindfolded. So he doesn't see. And so the will is relying on the intellect to be informed correctly. But if you notice, it's the will 
that in the picture has got the reins of all these horses in his hands. So the wheel is going to direct them. Uh, the wheel can certainly excite the passions, and the passions need to follow the lead of the wheel, which is sort of being guided by the intellect, which sees truth. And this is all very important, because in order to live a rightly ordered life, a good life, a happy life, and ultimately to achieve our end, to get to heaven, all of these things have to be rightly ordered. Okay, so the will does have to govern correctly, and the intellect has to know the truth, and then the passions have to be moved properly. Next time, what we're going to look at briefly is what sin does to all of this, and how it sort of throws it all into chaos. And you know, we're going to see some practical applications of how what we see today happening all around us in society, with seemingly our, our culture sort of falling apart, civilization being torn down. A lot of this has to do with the fact that. People don't have these things rightly ordered. So we want to make sure we understand them and do have them rightly ordered. As always, if you have any questions, please do email me. You can find that information at the show more or at our website. You can also call us at 1-800-263-8160. Email us at infofatima.org. Please continue to pray for the Fatima Center. Uh, we very much need your prayers and also very much need your donations. So please be as generous as God will grant you the grace to be so that you can help us continue in this very important work as we're bringing a message of Fatima, the message of salvation to, to many souls all over the world. Let's go ahead and close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. May God bless you. Have a great week. And we'll see you next time as we talk about how sin affects this basic human anthropology. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. We invite you to visit our website, www.fatima.org. Immaculate Heart of Mary, Ora for Novis.